accepted the 12 steps of AA, the 12 traditions of AA, and many other borrowed slogans and literature references from AA and other outside sources, the inclusion of the original text from which these came can be beneficial to many of us. As stated in Tradition 5, we are here only to help families and friends of alcoholics. This meeting is an open meeting. Everyone is welcome to attend and the group conscience requests that members of other programs keep the sharing focused on the Al-Anon meeting. Um, we're not gonna have sharings tonight because we have a special guest, um, and I'll get to that in just a second. Do we have any announcements? Uh, <coughs> My name is Catherine, and there is a great conference coming up in January right up the road in Beaumont. And it just so happens that on Saturday, one of the speakers mm -hmm. is Devil Winter. And so uh, you gals might really enjoy that. There's a flyer right up there. I think his first uh, first talk's in the morning, and then in the afternoon, Saturday. Do you Saturday. mind putting the basket so we can pass it around? Yeah. <coughs> okay, we'll, we'll push it in the basket and pass that around, and you can get the details, and then um, we'll get a copy of that and make sure that circulates. Lisa? Yes, um, there is a new calendar, uh, so you can sign up to share for this month and the coming months, and then if you have a birthday in the month of January and you want to celebrate it at this meeting, um, please sign up on the calendar as well, so we'll know how many celebrants we have. Um, it's the fourth <coughs> Saturday of every month is when our birthday night is. And also in the basket is a little um, booklet that contains some announcements, some from the East Texas Assembly, the last uh, bulletin they have, and also there mm -hmm. is information for the Alamon Convention, which is coming up on February 16th. It's in San Antonio. So if anyone wants to go to that, you can find out the information on that. Um, and I think that's all I have. Awesome. Um, I don't know this for a fact, so if anybody could speak to it, I'd appreciate it. I've been playing phone tag as a GR with the um, whoever. I can't remember who it is I'm playing contact with. Anyway, um, they are trying to call us after the vote. I'm assuming the vote passed and we were removed from the larger district and made part of the smaller district. I don't know if you guys remember talking about that, <clears throat> but I think maybe we've been made part of the Galveston district, which will be great. It was not in the last bulletin. They were still Okay, so she called and left a message. She just didn't give much more details. And just one other announcement. Um, okay. We do have a new GM. Yay! I know. I needed to be said that. Yes. All right. So, awesome. We will, we will be GR Emeritus, which okay. I'm, you know, excited. She tell me what to do. She tells me. Awesome. awesome. I am so good at that. And then we have, <laughs> and then Mark also um, called a group conference for, it's on the old calendar. It's the 13th, okay. right? We're calling, he's not here right now. He's in Minnesota, but um, I think it's like the 13th, and I'll put that on the new calendar, but it was okay. on the old calendar that I heard about. Okay. Anyway, that's for the yearly financial report. We do, we are a group that contributes our last month, last week's givings, so that would be this week, um, to the WSO and the other three organizations that are underneath that. Awesome. Very good. Thank you, Lisa. Anybody else? Okay. Um, just want to throw out really quick that in this meeting, uh, we meet the first week of the month, and we always do a step that first week. The second through the fourth weeks of the month are topics. We usually get them from either the big book or the 12 and 12. And then any month that there's a fifth week, 
like today, we have a speaker meeting. And then as Lisa already announced on the fourth um, Saturday of every month, we celebrate birthdays if you wanna do that. So at this point, I'm actually, um, I'm gonna turn the meeting over. We always try to start at 4.45 on speaker meeting so that we give the speaker the full hour and I want her to have that time. I am just like super excited and honored um, because it is my grand sponsor who is speaking tonight. And I want to turn the meeting over to my sponsor so she can introduce our speaker tonight. Hi everybody, I'm Nancy, Brett Alalon. Sorry we weren't here on time, we was at my house. <laughs> we lost track of time. Sorry, that's what happens when her and I get together. We can't help it. Uh, anyway, I just want to say, oh, this thing's recording, isn't it? Oh, God. Um, I just want to say I'm excited to have Sue come and talk here. I'm, I'm excited to hear her speak tonight. Uh, what I can say about Sue is that next month she will celebrate 35 years in Al-Anon. And I just celebrated 32 years, and that's how long we've been running together. Um, she wasn't my sponsor all those years. She was my friend. And I used to sit in meetings with her when I was fairly new, and everybody knew that when Sue came in the meeting that the Kleenex box had to go down to her immediately because <laughs> she cried all the time. Um, and we were talking on the way over here about how many uh, long-timers, women, that we have known throughout those years have gone to that big meeting in the sky. And Sue pointed out that those of us that are still here still stay in touch and we're involved with, with one another. And that's a great thing. I have a conference every year that I go to where I get to room with Sue. Uh, you can imagine uh, at 32 years, I sponsor quite a few people. At 35 years, she sponsors quite a few people. And so um, several years ago, many years ago, uh, Sue said, there's an opening in my room, and I locked it in, and I stay I stay in the room with her every year we get to go to a conference, and so I'm real grateful for that. Sue um, makes meetings regularly. Uh, I hear her uh, at a meeting that we go to together. I hear her, uh, I see her walk up to newcomers still, and I will, I will hear her say uh, um, that you need to get a sponsor in order to work these steps. And if you can't find one right away, you can call me as a temporary till you do find one. So she ex she teaches me with her actions. You still stick your hand out, no matter if you feel overwhelmed, no matter if you feel like it's time for the younger ones now to pick up some slack here. You still extend extend your hand to the new newcomer. And uh, uh, one more thing that I want to say about her: my husband dearly loves her. Uh, if we, uh, if I'm struggling with something uh, that has to do with us, and I'll say, I just got to call Sue. And as soon as I get off the phone, he says, well, what did Sue say? Because it's law in my house. <laughs> <laughs> but what I get out of her is, is every time I call her and she, she shares with me, she, she gives me new insight. She turns me just a little bit spiritually so that I can... I can go on and, and I feel like I've been given such a gift every time I'm able to, to reason something out with her. Sue, you're an inspiration. You're, you're my hero. You're one that's walking the path ahead of me and keeps showing me how you're the one that taught me to be a mother and not a mommy. 
I just can't say enough about you. I love you. Come on up here. Hi, everybody. I'm Sue, and I'm a very grateful Alamon. And I'm, I just feel, um, I just feel really blessed to be here tonight and to be able to do this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you why. Uh, I feel that way. Um, I, I got uh, called on Thursday about doing it, and um, my husband, <laughs> my husband has been go- going through a month of kidney stones. So um, it was like, heck yeah, I'll speak on Saturday. <laughs> I'd just come out of a meeting um, when I got the message. And so I really felt like, because I've not been in a good place with this whole situation with my husband being sick, it's been going on for a really long time. And I just really felt like that was God's way of, of um, giving me another opportunity to take a break and um, to do what I love to do, which is um, to share this program, which has given me so much. Um, I, um, Nancy and I came in, we were very young, weren't we, Nancy? <laughs> we were practically alla embryos when we got here. <laughs> uh, but it, but I, I feel really blessed that I, uh, that I did find this program um, right before uh, I hit my 30s. Um, and I, and I feel really grateful for that, um, that I have had the experience of being in this, in these rooms for all these years. And, um, and these past, this past year, um, I've really needed every ounce of all of those 35 years. And I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, I was born into the disease of alcoholism and, um, it's pretty much all I knew, um, my uh, mother and dad were actually separated when I was born. Uh, my mother, my dad had beat her up really bad. Uh, he was a violent uh, alcoholic even at the uh, at the beginning when they were young. And um, so she had taken all the money that she could get together and gotten a bus ticket from Knoxville to Cincinnati. And I was born in Cincinnati and uh, never went back there again, never, you know, don't know anything about that area, uh, but that is just, I know that that's just how much money my mother had, and that was as far away as she could get at the time. Um, Of course, eventually they did end up going back together, and then um, I had a little sister born, we're two years apart, and then a brother. And um, so, my dad traveled for work. We traveled a lot, and he drank a lot. And um, he drank whiskey. And when he drank whiskey, he got mean. And um, he drank a lot of whiskey. And he took that out on my mother. Um, he beat her again when she was pregnant with uh, my little sister, and she was born breech because of it. And um, and my mother would periodically leave over the years, but she always came back. She always came back. And um, it wasn't until you know, it's taken me a lot of years and a lot of time in this program to start to have some understanding about all that. And I think it wasn't until I found myself repeating the same pattern of leaving and coming back and leaving and coming back. And uh, I began to understand a little bit about uh, the addiction to the alcoholic, but I didn't, I didn't know anything about that till I got to y'all. Um, so 
my memories of my childhood, my first ones are of fear. I was terrified of my, my dad because he was so violent. And um, his way of controlling the family was um, through fear and anger. And, um, you know, if we were afraid enough of him, we did, and we towed the line. We all three towed the line. And um, he would um, start off being violent with my mother, and then it would spill over to us kids. Um, sometime around my eighth or ninth birthday, they went into the bar business. They bought their first neighborhood beer joint. And um, for the next about uh, eight, nine, ten years, they were in that business. So that was a pretty convenient job for an uh, alcoholic. But the thing about it was, is my mother worked her tail off and my dad drank and that was just you know the way it went but I came to find out years later that uh, because even after my mother and dad divorced and everything my mother continued to like to hang around in the beer joints and so um, and she did that up, up until she had a stroke and could no longer do it and so I began to understand that she enjoyed that life too during the years when she was working so hard she didn't drink a lot but then after we were grown and she just uh, started hanging out in them and that's and then she began drinking quite heavily and it ended up in her having a stroke and that, that pretty much finished it for her. But So uh, that was the way of life I knew. Uh, we, were, we didn't go around the beer joints a whole lot, but once in a while. Um, and uh, because they didn't really, they didn't want, to, want us to be raised in that environment, but yet the environment just came right directly into our home. And um, so I was always, I grew up with the overwhelming feeling of always being afraid and um, not feeling good enough. And I was thinking about the things that we learn in this program. One of the things that we learn in here is that um, feelings aren't facts. And I used to hear that and I would, you know, I would try to say, well, what, what does that mean? I don't really understand what that means. And so. An example of that that I can give you today is that I grew up always being afraid and always feeling like I was less than. Those were my feelings, okay? That was how I felt growing up, but that's not the fact. I am not less than, and I am not unlovable, and I am not uh, someone that deserves to be treated so badly. Just because that's the way it felt growing up in that home, that was imprinted on me, and I took that with me and I felt that way, um, the program has taught me so much about how to separate those feelings from what the facts are, but that also that I have had over the years to have to acknowledge all those feelings, all those really bad, bad feelings so that I could figure out the difference between what I was feeling, what was real, what the real facts were, and to give myself permission that it was okay to feel that because it wasn't okay to feel that growing up, of course. It was a dictatorship and you felt what you were told to feel and and uh, and any crying annoyed my dad. So consequently, when I got here, like Nancy said, I, I've always been a crier and it just irritated, it just drove my dad crazy because that was the one thing he couldn't control because when I get started, even I can't control it. So it wasn't like anybody else outside of me could control it. I get very overwhelmed and, uh, and I, it, I, uh, before I got to the program, would cry for two, three hours when my husband and I would be having problems, get migraine headaches and the whole nine yards. So it wasn't unusual for me when I came into Al-Anon and finally got someplace safe.
for the feelings to start coming and the tears to start coming and it was it, it, it was acceptable here I mean it was like it got to be funny I mean I would come in they would see where I was sitting they would put the Kleenex down at the end of the table when they knew I was going to share so that I could because I could not open my mouth without crying and um, it was that way it was that way for uh, the first year probably two years <clears throat> probably longer than that and it's only recently in the last five years or so that I've gotten to where um, it's not, I don't cry quite every time I share. But these days the tears are different. And these days when I have those tearful shares, it's because I'm grateful. It's because whatever's going on in my life, I know I'm gonna bring it to the table and I'm gonna get some solution or at the very least, I'm not gonna have to take that home with me. And so I'm so grateful for that. Um, the abuse that went on in our home Beca became uh, more than just physical and verbal. Um, somewhere between my eighth and ninth birthdays, I've you know gotten in touch with as close as I can to the time, like I've learned to do in this program through my inventories and everything. Uh, the sexual abuse began, and that was to continue until my mother finally left right before my 16th birthday. Um, sometime between, sometime in that year, between 15 and 16, I. Um, went to her and told her because she knew, she knew the whole time it was going on. And um, although she didn't participate in the abuse, she was an active participant in the, uh, she knew it was going on, she didn't do anything to stop it. It was happening right under her nose and she knew it and she never, uh, she really encouraged it and um, coerced me. Um, and so, and when they would be separated and she would be gone, my dad never touched me. And so he also, when she was gone, was not violent with us kids. He was like a different person when she was gone, but he would always be searching for her, so maybe he was obsessed with that, I don't know. But what I've learned from the program is, uh, without his enabler, which that was what my mother did best, um, I guess he didn't, he wasn't as comfortable with it, or I don't know, but anyway. So I would, even though it would be really, really hard for us when she would leave because we'd just wake up and she'd be gone, I would be glad because I would know that at least those times I would be free from, from that, from the abuse. So, and then she'd come home and promises would be made and within a few months he'd be drinking again, we'd be right back where we, where we started and, and even worse. So by the time I was 15, um, I told her that um, I had read this Ann Landers column about AA, Al-Anon, and Alateen, and I had cut it out and hid it in my closet, and of course there was no privacy in my home, and it got found, and I got f confronted, and hollered at, and you know, how dare I say that my dad was an alcoholic, you know, so, but I remembered that, and I told my, I asked my mother, I said, can you find out about it, and maybe I could just go, you know, I just, maybe I can go, and she said, you know, he'll never let you do that. So that was shoved under the rug, but what did happen by me reading that, and then I started gathering up some information, and so I told her that if she didn't get me out, that I couldn't take it anymore, that I was either going to run away from home, or I was going to go tell the school counselor. And I had been mulling it over and mulling it over about going and talking to the school counselor, because I was scared, but I didn't really know what else to do. And um, she started crying, and she begged me not to do that. She begged me not to run away. Um, 
she said, you know, you'll get out there on the streets and something bad will happen to you. She begged me not to go to the school counselor. She begged me to give her just a little bit more time that she was working on getting us out. And she, she put the cherry on top by saying that if I went to the school counselor, all, all three of us would be taken away and put in put the cherry on top by saying that if I went to the school counselor, all, all three of us would be taken away and put in foster homes and I'd be separated from my brother and sister. So, I mean, I couldn't, you know, I wasn't going to do it after that because in that moment I felt like I had that responsibility on my shoulders and they had put that responsibility on me from the time that the younger ones had been born anyway. So I was their second mom. So by her saying that, she knew exactly. And I've learned in the program, you know, we talk about buttons and, you know, what we learned growing up and what's in our DNA. And um, that was just one of the examples of being taught that my most important job was taking care of others. It was taking care of her, number one. She was number one, keeping her house clean, keeping the things that she wanted done, her laundry. You know, she even taught me how to wash her bras and keeping my brother and sister taken care of from getting, feeding them, getting them off to school, making sure I was there when they get, got home from school. Um, if my mom was gone, making sure there was supper. So, you know, I learned that and that's the way I was raised and that's what I was taught. So that was imprinted on me. So when I came into the program, when I finally got here and I started hearing some of these things that y'all were talking about, like on the do's and don'ts and, you know, and, and healthy selfishness and how we have to take care of ourselves first before we have anything to give anybody else. And I was like, what in the hell? I, I did not understand any of that that y'all were talking about. Everything went against everything that I had learned growing up or every, anything that I had ever been taught. So my mother did finally leave right before my 16th birthday. She ran off with another man who had been good friends with my dad. And right before my 18th birthday, I met what was then, uh, uh, was this man that my mother ran, ran off with was his nephew. And um, we, I turned 18 in July, and um, so I met him, but he came to Houston with them, and I stayed in Oklahoma. But um, about a month later, I ended up coming to Houston. I lost my job, my car burned up, and I came to Houston, and um, we started dating, and two weeks later, we got married. Went to the Justice of the Peace and got married. Um, and I look back on that now. I've done a lot of work on that. And um, what I know today was that was a solution to my problem. You know, he was going to take care of me. And um, he promised he rented an apartment upstairs for my mother. And um, he said, you know, it's going to be fine. We can do this. We can do it. He was 23. I was 18. He had just broken up from a, he'd been married for four years, just broken up from his wife. So we got married, and um, we had a good time for a while. You know, we drank, we smoked pot, everything was fun. We were partying. I got to be a teenager. I got to have fun, something that I'd never experienced before. Um, but I was so damaged. I mean, what, what girl in her right mind, and I was a girl, knows somebody for two weeks and says, heck yeah, let's get married. Sounds like a great idea. And it did sound like a great idea because I was sleeping on the floor in my mother's apartment. So, you know, anything was better than what I was going through. And my dad had started coming back around and that was giving me the creeps. And I felt like that Charlie would take care of me and protect me. And so I said, yes. And sometimes I've shared from the podium that I said yes because there was a part of me that thought, what if nobody else ever asks? 
And there was a part of me that thought that, but what I know today was, is that I used him in that moment. He was, I didn't do it intentionally, but he was an answer to a prayer in that moment. And um, he was gonna take me away from all that, like a cow gone bath, and everything was gonna be wonderful. He was gonna take me away. Well, he was from Oklahoma, and I guess I thought we would eventually go back up there or whatever, but we didn't, and um, stayed down here close to my family and uh, started trying to live our happily ever after. Um, but as things happen, we, you know, he kept drinking, and then he stopped working, and we got thrown out of the apartment, and so then he straightened up a little bit and got a job, and I got a job, and everything started going good. We were doing pretty good and having a good time, and then I noticed, you know, that the drinking, he was really, the drinking was starting to pick up, and he was drinking, we were smoking pot. I didn't drink, but I smoked. And so I made a deal with him. I said, can you, you know, you think you could, you know, like, I don't like it when you're drunk. You know, I just don't, it just makes me real uncomfortable and I don't like it. Sure, he said, no problem. I'll quit drinking so much, we'll just smoke pot. That'll work. So I, I know today, you know, they call it in the program marijuana maintenance. And he would do that for a while. He could do that for a while, but he always went back to his alcohol, always. So we started trying to have kids and um, I wasn't able to have any at that time. I and uh, But the doctor said that uh, I had a weight problem and that that was what was keeping me from having kids. So, you know, don't tell me twice. I mean, you give me a mission and I went on it and I lost 100 pounds and I had my two children. Uh, they're 23 months apart. And, um, and I thought that was going to fix everything. Of course I did. I mean, what any woman in her right mind wouldn't think that you're going to get this man to sober up if you give him children. That just made the most perfect sense to me at the time. And what actually happened was um, the pressure of that, the pressure that we went through to have them, and then we had two so close together, and it escalated the drinking. He laid off for a little while, and then once our daughter was born, then it really escalated, and he added more drugs. And so things started getting crazy pretty quick. Now, my reaction to all that during the time was I had all of this anger and rage inside me from the childhood that I just did a very brief description of. And um, and when my husband would, what I considered, step over the line, I could handle it. I had a like a threshold of drinks or whatever. And when he would get that glazed look in his eyes, I would go crazy. I would be, I would just like, we'd start fighting. And I let him have it. I was verbally abusive. I was loud. Um, I made his life miserable. Um, I hated it when he drank, and so I thought um, that I could try to control that with my anger. Sometimes it would work, sometimes it would make it worse. Um, I tried all the tricks. I tried everything. So basically, I'm basically raising my kids by myself. He's working a lot of hours. When he's not working, he's drinking. And um, one day, he had started a little business and I called out to the shop and it was 10 o'clock in the morning and he was drunk. Um, he now calls, he jokes about it now, he calls it Allen on radar. He used to say that I could hear his voice on the other end of the phone and tell you exactly how much he'd had to drink and that was true, I could. Um, and so it's 10 o'clock in the morning and he's drunk and I went nuts and we're fighting over the phone screaming and hollering. And I'm like, we can't even, you know, put groceries on the table and you're drinking and, you know, 
So we're screaming and hollering and I've got a three and a half year old and an 18 month old by that time. And they were out in the backyard. So um, my son pooped his pants. So I'm in a rage, okay? And I'd hang up the phone, we'd be fighting. Then I'd wait five or 10 minutes, I'd call him back, fight some more. So my son pooped his pants. So I got him cleaned up, got him all cleaned up, got him changed, changed his clothes, shoot him back out in the backyard. I'm busy, you know, go back out, go back out and play. Got back on the phone with my husband again. More fighting, more screaming, more hollering. Pooped his pants again. So this time I was furious, even more furious. Um, so I got him cleaned up again. I was a little rougher this time about it. Um, you know, kind of hollering at him and fussing at him and, you know, uh, you're potty trained and, you know, your sister doesn't, you know, just, just terrible. So I got him cleaned up again, back out in the yard. So it happened a third time. So this time I cleaned him up and I was pretty upset and he yanked himself away from me. And he doesn't have any bottoms on, no diaper, no shorts or anything. He yanked himself away from me. And he ran in the bedroom and he, there was a double bed in a crib. And he went to climb up on the double bed to get away from me. And I got a hold of his leg and I pulled him off the bed and I started smacking him. Don't you run from me, you know, and I'm smacking him on his thigh and on his leg and he's screaming and my little daughter's circling the bedroom going mommy mommy stop stop about that time I see my handprint I'll never forget it if I live no matter how old I live to be I saw my handprint come up on his leg my big red handprint big whelp come up on his on his thigh and I sat down in, the, in that bedroom floor with those kids and I had one in one arm and one in the other and they're crying and I start crying and I'm begging him to forgive me. I'm so sorry, Andy, I'm so sorry. Mom was so sorry. I was, I was just heartbroken that I had, I mean, it was just like it, God let me see it. It just all washed over me in that split second what I was doing. You know, from the screaming and hollering on the phone with my husband to the shoving my kids out in the yard to get them out of my way to my handprint coming up on his leg, you know, and God just showed me that what I read in that column that day about how alcoholism goes down to generations and how um, we end up uh, doing the things that we swore we would never do. We end up becoming those people, you know, and, and that just, and all those things that I'd heard about abuse gets passed down, you know, and, and, and people that are abused ended up being abusers. And then I really started crying. I'm like, I'm abusing, like, I'm abusing my child. I'm abusing my child. He's three and a half and it just dawned on me. He's just a baby. You know, and I'm already putting my hands on him. And I knew I was in trouble. I knew I was in big, big trouble. But I just thought that it was because my husband drank. I did not associate, even though I'm telling you that I was recognizing that I was abusing my child and that I knew that I was abused child, I still thought that if he didn't drink, it would all go away, that I would be okay and I wouldn't have to act like that. I wouldn't be that crazy. If I hadn't been on the phone with his drunk ass, that I would not be that crazy. And so that came into my head, not Al-Anon, but AA. I mean, I'm sitting on the floor and I'm praying to God. I'm like, God, help me. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be like this anymore. Please help me. And AA came into my head. So I got up off the floor and I went under the counter and I grabbed the phone book out and I looked up Alcoholics Anonymous and there was a number there in like black bold type. And I called that number and I'm crying. And this man answers the phone, Alcoholics Anonymous, may I help you? And I'm crying, you know, and I said, I think my husband has a drinking problem and um, is uh, we need help. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure I was just blubbering, you know, and he listened and then he said, sweetie, 
if your husband wants help from Alcoholics Anonymous, he'll have to give us a call. Uh, he'll have to call. But there is a place that you can go and let me give you that number. And he gave me the number to Al-Anon Intergroup. And I called Al-Anon Intergroup and this was on a Thursday and the very next day on Friday, there was a meeting. One street over from where I lived at a church, my children went to Mother's Day out on Friday from nine until three and the meeting was from 10 until noon. So I was scared to death, but the next morning I took the kids to Mother's Day out and I went right around the corner to the church and I went to my very first meeting. And it was a two hour meeting, an hour of step study, an hour of discussion. And I walked in there, sat down at the table and started crying. Read everything on the walls, you know. That sounds really good, I'm scared about the God stuff. I don't know about that. I guess he's somewhere, but I don't, I don't know where he's at. But they read the do's and don'ts. And oh my goodness. Do learn the facts about alcoholism. Do find someone who understands alcoholism. Don't make threats you don't intend to carry out. Do keep a healthy emotional atmosphere in your home. And I'm like, oh my God. So she reads all the do's. I'm like, I'm doing, I'm doing all those and I'm doing them all wrong. And she reads all the don'ts. I'm like, I'm doing every damn one of those. I mean, that is just, that's my life and the don'ts. Tell me I can't do that anymore. Oh my God. But the do's and don'ts. And then the, in our room, we had the slogans, you know, and it was like, let go and let God one day at a time. This too shall pass. I'm like, no, this, this sounds really, this sounds really, really good, and, and I really, really need to hear all this. And then the women started sharing around the table, and there were some older women in there, and um, as I now are one, and uh, and they were sharing around the table, and it was like, you know, this woman was on marriage number two, this marriage one was on marriage number three, there was a lady in there who'd been married four times, all of them alcoholics. So in that moment, I knew. I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that would be me. I knew I go home and leave him tomorrow. I will have another one. I will, I will find another alcoholic. I just knew it because I knew that everything that they were reading in the opening and the do's and don'ts and everything that they were sharing and all the women that were sharing, everyone was sharing a little part of my story. Everyone was telling a little bit about what was going on in my house. Everybody was talking about leaving and then coming back. And I thought how many times I've put my kids in the car and circled the driveway and just pulled right back in the driveway because I didn't have any place to go. My mother's favorite expression was, you made your bed, now you lie in it. Don't come home to me with those kids. I raised my kids, which she did not, but she liked to say that she did. And, um, but you know, it was, uh, there was no place for me to go. There was no safe place. There was absolutely no safe place until I found Al-Anon. And this became my safe place. And it became the place where I could come and I could, talk about what was going on and everybody understood and then as I started sharing a little bit of my background about the way I had grown up um, I was directed uh, about after about a year in the program to uh, an ACA group and I started going to the ACA group and um, I talk about today how those two programs intertwined in my life to teach me so much. ACA helped me so much to begin to understand about the disease of alcoholism, about the family disease of alcoholism, and how at the age of 18, when I met that 23-year-old man that I thought was going to rescue me, and how sick I thought he was, and I started learning how sick I was, and how I had been so deeply affected by alcoholism, 
and how my husband and I were just attracted like two magnets. He was sick and I was sick and bam. And we just hooked up and off we went. And we didn't see anything wrong with that at all until it stopped working. And um, of course my husband hated me coming to Al-Anon. He hated it. Um, I was not one of those women that kept it a secret for very long. Um, I think I went maybe to a couple of meetings before I let him know I was going. And then I started leaving literature laying around. <laughs> Big book in the bathroom. You know, should come and go to a meeting with me, you know. Um, I started telling him, you need AA. Uh, I think you're an alcoholic. And he's like, I'm not an alcoholic and I can quit anytime I want and I don't really care what you think. And um, so, but I kept coming. I kept coming and uh, I would get my sister-in-law and she would help help me watch the kids, but a lot of times I took them to meetings with me. And um, there was a meeting on Tuesday night, that's where Nancy and I met, and it was very kid-friendly. You could bring your kids, and then a lady there started a pre-alatine group. So my kids actually started in the program when they were six and eight in that little pre-alatine group and then went into alatine. And um, so, I, I, I mean, it, I was so blessed to have that, so very, I mean, I cannot even say how blessed I was because there's very few of those uh, pre-alatine groups around anymore, if there are any, I don't know, but, um, and to have alatine group and AA and everything right there all together was such a blessing for my family. I'm so grateful for that. And I just kept coming. I started going, I always made two meetings a week. I would try to go to three whenever I could. And I started trying to get to conferences and things uh, when I could. And I started learning how to get a life. And I'm telling you, that sounds really great, but it was the hardest thing that I have ever had to do. And it still to this day can be difficult for me to make my life and what I have to do and what I want to do the priority if somebody else has something that they need. So um, I work on that every day to make sure that I'm taking care of what I need to take care of or doing what I want to do that is healthy for me and not filling that up with what everybody else wants me to do. So that's part of my healing process and for part of my recovery and once again goes against everything that I was ever taught. So um, I, I got a home group and I, I was faithful about coming and then a group started, an AA club started over on the east side in Channel View and I started going there and the kids and it was really good and um, my husband started trying to get sober. And um, he went to, uh, I started in January and he went to his first AA meeting in July. Actually, it was like a 4th of July party thing and, and I was going with the kids. Picnic, meet, you know, speaker meeting, the whole thing that they do. And uh, it was the first time that I had ever experienced anything like that with a group or an AA, you know, an AA club, like a function like that. And I was really excited and wanted to go. And so he didn't want to get left home all day, I guess, so he came along. And there was a dance that night and a speaker and um, the AA speaker was so good. And I looked over and my husband was crying. And my heart was just pounding in my chest. I was like, oh my God, he, he's found AA. It's gonna be wonderful now. <laughs> he's got it, he's crying, he's identifying, he loves it, he's coming, you know. And he got up and got a desire chip. And then my heart was really pounding. I was like, oh, it's gonna be wonderful. It's gonna be great. We could have papered the wall over the next years with the chips that he got and the, the, the times, I mean, you know, we had a drawer full of silver, red, green, blue. I mean, he really, really, he would get a little ways in and then he would relapse and he'd get a little bit and then he'd relapse. 
And um, it went on like that for a very, very long time. But the thing that didn't change during all that time was I kept going to my meetings. I would crawl in a meeting sometime because sometime he would get like, I don't know what the six months, the green, whatever. He, he'd had six months, he'd had nine months. One time he got three years. And when he relapsed from that three year period of sobriety, um, he wasn't able to get sober again after that. He just continued to drink after that relapse until he hit rock bottom. 